as the spring semester of school winds down, there are a lot of people who are getting wound up, kind of getting fired up. I'm thinking especially about seniors in high school who are getting ready to graduate high school. They are so fired up. And I know that there are probably a couple of parents who are really fired up to see them graduate. And, and you're kind of thinking to yourself, you know, it's time. And I understand what that dynamic is like. I know about it. I've, I've lived it. I think also about college seniors like our daughter Emily, who is really, really getting wound up as she's thinking about life after college and, and what that's going to look like and what it's going to be like. We hear from Emily on the reg about how it is and how she and her friends are talking on a regular basis about what now, what, what's coming next, what's, what's it going to look like, are we going to stay in touch, what are you going to be doing in the summer, what about next fall, and, and they're all getting really and truly kind of wound up doing what Emily refers to as adulting. They're all starting to think about adulting. Now Emily's going to have a really fascinating transition because she's going to be moving back to Austin. But not to my house. Yay! We are so excited about that transition. It's going to be a beautiful thing. Now, Emily, she'll be gainfully employed for a few months before she launches her career in grad school. And it's been a fascinating journey to watch her transition from college student to grad student and and try to navigate those waters. But I think what Emily is asking for herself and amongst her friends is actually the perfect question for us to ask on the heels of Easter. And it is the very, very direct, but very, very simple question, what now? As a matter of fact, turn to your neighbor with passion and enthusiasm and ask them, what now? Now, this is a critical, critical question on the heels of Easter. You know, now that Jesus has risen from the dead, now that we know that everything in life that matters hinges on the body of Jesus and the fact that he, he outdueled death and he outgraced the grave. What now? What, what, do we, what do we do with that? It, it was the same question that Jesus' closest followers were asking in that interim between his resurrection from the dead and his return to heaven. They were, they were like, Lord, what now? And, and if you look in the book of Acts, The book of Acts is where the Bible begins to reveal the the repercussions of the resurrection. It's where the the resurrection begins to take root. And it's where the resurrection becomes real in people's lives in the physical absence of Jesus. Because we know that Jesus was here on the earth for 40 days after his resurrection. He was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses. But then he, he returned to heaven. And his his closest followers knew that he wasn't going to be there forever and that he was going to kind of turn over the keys of the kingdom to them. And they were so curious about what now? And in the very first chapter of Acts, the Bible records a conversation amongst Jesus and his followers. And, and his disciples are, are kind of getting fired up. They're getting wound up like a, like a graduating senior. And they're like, Lord, what now? Is this, Lord, where, where you're going to restore The kingdom of Israel to us? Is this where you're going to finally throw off Roman oppression and Israel's going to return to her original splendor and power and position of status in the world? And Jesus just kind of looks at it and goes, "Mm, you don't get it. 
you're, you're missing the point here. He said, you know, the, 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 the initiation of the kingdom of God has begun, but the, the culmination is for another time. And you don't need to really worry about when that's going to be because only God the Father knows when the culmination is going to happen. But in the meantime, in the, in the now what, let, let, me, let me explain to you what this is going to look like. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to look in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is what Jesus said to him. He said that, you know, the culmination's not here yet, but, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people everywhere about me. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You ask, what now? Here's what this is going to look like. You will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, I said just a moment ago that they were approaching the physical absence of Jesus. But in the physical absence of Jesus, in his grace and in his love, God has provided the spiritual presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that indwells every single follower of Christ. The second you step into a relationship with Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Now there is the constant process of becoming more like Christ, becoming sanctified, the Bible calls it. But it's ultimately about this presence that lives in our lives. And when we receive the presence of the Holy Spirit, we receive a, a power that we can't generate on our own. We, we can't fake it. We can't fabricate it. It is something that only God himself can provide. But, but then Jesus says something really interesting, and especially to the first century mind, especially to the first century Jewish mind to whom he was speaking here. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Now, to Jesus' disciples, all of whom were Jewish, to be a witness in Jerusalem would have been redundant. That, that would be like saying you're a Longhorn fan at Royal Memorial Stadium. You're kind of like, well, duh. You know, I, I'm a Longhorn fan. This is God's favorite team. I wear the burnt orange. This is what we do. Somebody should have shouted amen, right? I'm just saying. But Jerusalem was the epicenter for the nation of Israel's worship of Jehovah, of God. But Jesus said, even in Jerusalem, I, I want the people of Jerusalem to understand there is a new covenant in town. There is a, a new expanded message than the one that they're used to they need to understand this as much as anybody so it starts here in jerusalem with your families with your neighbors the people you know the people you used to fish with the people you used to collect taxes with i want them to know then we're going to expand out of jerusalem and go into judea now now judea was the region within which jerusalem resided and jesus said we're, we're taking this it's not going to stay here in jerusalem it's going to expand and go out, and you're going to do that. But then he said Samaria. Now, Samaria, as you would imagine, was the home of the Samaritans. And to the strictly religious Jew of Jesus' day, the Samaritans were unclean. They, they would have been referred to as 
half-breeds because they were sort of Jewish but not completely Jewish. And in that social construct, in that day and age, the heart and soul religious Jew would have said the Samaritans were unclean. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees, whom we'll get to in just a few minutes, the Pharisees wouldn't even go through Samaria to get to the other side. They would add another day and a half to their journey to go around Samaria to get up to the region north of Samaria. So when Jesus says, we're going to take the gospel, we're going to take the message to Samaria, this was a radical, radical proposition but not as radical as the next statement. Because not only are we going to take the message, not only will you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now for you and me, we read that and we're like, sure, hop on a plane. But in Jesus' day and age, 95% of the population never left the village they were born in. So when Jesus said, you're going to take this message to the ends of the earth, they literally could not even get their minds around it. They, they lived in towns and villages about the size of the neighborhood immediately adjacent to our church. And 95% of them never left that particular size village or town. And so when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, it's like... <clears throat> but Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth... Jerusalem, that's, that's our Austin. That's, that's our neighborhood where we live. Judea, Judea would be like, like Texas, the state where we are. It's the region within which we live. Samaria, the, the, place, the, the place of the unclean and, and the, the distant people, that's like, that's Oklahoma. We, we go around Oklahoma. I'm teasing. I tease because I care. It's a joke. It's a joke. Mostly. But, but you understand. See, that hit a raw nerve right there. That was funny. That was funny. That was a Rorschach test. That was more about how you responded to it than what I said. But the ends of the earth are the ends of the earth. And, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Easter, that this Jesus rose from the dead with the promise of new life, matters in our neighborhoods. It, it matters in our schools. It matters in the marketplace where we work day in and day out. It, it matters in our state, in our nation. It matters to the ends of the earth. But, but there's, a, there's a problem. Because as soon as we use the words, you will be my witnesses, a lot of us, a lot of us who have been followers of Christ for a long time maybe, begin to get very, very nervous and begin to really kind of shrink in the seat and, and wait for the subject matter to pass. Because we get anxious thinking about witnessing for Jesus. We, we think about, does that mean we have to like put on like a, a white shirt and a black tie and ride a bicycle around and, and tell people, knock on doors and, and hand out tracts? Or, or, no, it, it means that you will be his, his witnesses, that, that your life is a witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is our job in the world. We're not here just to, just to burn 70 or 80 years and hopefully make a little cash along the way and have some kids that do well in team sports and, 
and go to church unless we get a better option. We're here to be the body of Christ, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. Austin's our Jerusalem. It's not a bad Jerusalem when you think about it. To to be his witnesses in, in Judea and Texas and Samaria, the nation, and to the ends of the earth. And it it doesn't require necessarily becoming a, a missionary to Borneo or, you know, going to Ethiopia. It may be that, but more than likely, it, it's going to require just being a missionary in your neighborhood, just being a missionary at the office, which means you've got to be wise about how you do it. And fortunately, the Bible records for us a fascinating episode in the early days of Jesus' ministry that is an example for us to follow. If you've got your Bibles, look in Matthew chapter number 9. Matthew chapter 9 is a fascinating, fascinating episode. Now, let me give you a little bit of background as you're looking that up. Matthew was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, one of the dirty dozen that followed Jesus around, learned from him, and then were entrusted with the message of Christ after he returned to heaven. And Matthew, as one of the original dirty dozen, Matthew was one of the least likely to have ever been chosen. He was a tax collector. He was by nature, or by birth, a Jewish tax collector. Now, to understand that, it's kind of funny that we would have this message the week of tax day here in the United States. How many of you finished your taxes and got them in on time? Let me just see a show of hands. That's awesome. Now, if you didn't do your taxes, don't tell people you go to church here, okay? <laughs> but, but tax day, we understand. We, we know what that feels like. My brother's a CPA in Houston, and, and every single year, man, he just gets so slammed this time of year because of people like me who send him the, the, their information like on April the 14th or this year on the 17th. He's like, okay, maybe next year, Mac, if you just do it before the end of March, that would be awesome. But for Matthew and his tribe, Matthew was part of a highly, highly corrupt system. What would happen is Rome would assess taxes to the citizens in the areas that they had jurisdiction over. There in Judea, Matthew would have been one of the Roman tax collectors, even though he was Jewish. But the tax collectors would assess a higher percentage than the one that Rome told them about and then pocket the difference. If you were a tax collector with no conscience, it was a good gig. I mean, it was sweet. You were loaded. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Loaded. Matthew was one of these guys. And as such, and it was a known fact that they were corrupt. And so the the general populace hated the tax collectors. Hated them. They they were seen as traitors because they were traitors. (laughs) They, They were Jewish citizens that had been corrupted and co-opted by Rome to collect taxes, pocketing the difference. It was an amazing system. And yet in Matthew chapter 9, I want you to see how Jesus operates. Watch what happens. Matthew chapter 9, the Bible says this, verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. That's it. So Matthew got up and followed him. 
Isn't that a phenomenal moment? Just, hey, come here. Okay. And he got up and he followed him. I was in college. I was driving back to the University of Texas from Houston, where I'm from. I'd been home one weekend, and I was driving through the, the town of Columbus. Beautiful little town. It was driving, pouring rain. And as I made the turn off of Interstate 10 to Highway 71, I noticed there were two men stranded on the side of the road. Their car was broken down. They were standing outside in this driving, torrential downpour. And I went driving by them, and, and as, a, as a follower of Christ and, and an act of compassion, I changed lanes so that I wouldn't spray them on the way by. <laughs> I was being sweet. But I, I've, I sensed the very real urging of, of, of God to pull over and help them. I didn't, I didn't hear an audible voice or anything. I just, I just felt God kind of prompt me in my mind, in my heart, and say, hey, Remember the, the whole Good Samaritan thing? I meant that. Go, go help them. I was like, Lord, it is really wet. Have you ever argued with God? I don't recommend it. But, but I've done it. I, and I was doing it here in my car that day. And so I said, you know what? And so just I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I, I hit the next exit, doubled back around. Lo and behold, nobody else had stopped to help them either. I pulled up behind them, behind their car, and I, I got out, and I found something to kind of put over my head like a makeshift umbrella, and I said, hey, y'all need some help? And they were like, oh, thank you so much. And, and they, were both, they were both men from India, and they, they were so gracious and so appreciative. We were all three by now just drenched, standing there in the rain. We, we get back in my car, and we're driving down the road, and, and, and I, I've since kind of God prompting me again. And he says, tell them why you stopped. I said, Lord, they're out of the rain. They're good. <laughs> and and, and, and God, God got really stubborn on me. And he goes, no, tell them. I was like, they're, they're going to think I'm nuts. He goes, that's, that's not my problem. <laughs> Don't act weird, but just tell them. This was the dialogue. This is how I pray. So you're, you, I mean, it kind of hurts that you're laughing right now, but that's okay. And so I did. I, I was in college. I just went, I said, hey, I, <clears throat> I just, I want you all to know why I stopped. I, I stopped because I, I believe in Jesus and I think he's the greatest thing that's ever happened to the world and I think he could be great in your life. You may already believe in him. You may not believe in him. But I just wanted you to know that's why I stopped. They looked at me like I had four heads. <laughs> they said, we're Hindu, but thanks. <laughs> when we got to the gas station for them to use the phone, I'm just, just as an aside, I said, y'all need me to stay? They said, no, we're good. <laughs> now, I tell you that story specifically because there was no dramatic conversion experience there in my car. We didn't jump out and baptize them in the Colorado River in the rain. 
but at least once in my life, I responded. At least one time, I, I did what I felt like God wanted me to do in the moment. Like, like Matthew, I, I got up and I followed. I want to live like that. I, I want that to be the, the rule and not the exception in my life. There, there have been other times when I did, I'm just telling you. But, but that's one time I remember so vividly, it is seared into my spirit. I want to live like that. I got up and I followed. And, and it's funny because of, of what happened next in Matthew's story. This is a great moment. You're going to love this. Verse 10, Matthew chapter 9 again. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Isn't that a great phrase? Disreputable sinners. How many of you know a disreputable sinner? Let me just see a show of hands. Let me ask you another question. And this one's rhetorical, just I'll tell you in advance. How many of you are a disreputable sinner? We all are. That's that's every single one of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. Not one. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. You ain't good enough to get to God. I'm not good enough. I can't do it by myself. That's why grace continues to be amazing. But this was the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Why does your teacher eat with disreputable sinners? Sometimes people will say, Pastor, do you know who is at church on Sunday? I'm like, oh, I've got no idea. And they'll, they'll say a name. I'm like, that doesn't mean anything to me. Let me just say, the fact that the building is still standing is nothing short of a modern-day miracle. But here's the problem. The Pharisees don't get it. They didn't get it in Jesus' day, and they don't get it now. We're all disreputable sinners, every single one of us. You may not be a tax collector. You may not be a prostitute. You may not be an adulterer. You may not be a murderer. You may be. But compared to the holiness and the righteousness of God, we are all disreputable sinners. Every single one of us. And, and, and the Pharisees, now the Pharisees were interesting. They were, they were what would be called, Paul kind of referred to them as Jews of Jews. They, they, were, they were theologian lawyers. They were so well versed, so rehearsed, so well studied in the law of of Moses, they created hundreds of laws about the law. You ever know someone like that? Like the oh, you, know, you can't drink, dance, or chew, or hang around those who do. That's that's the Pharisee. But look at how Jesus just upsets the Pharisee apple cart. Look at what he said. When Jesus heard this, he said, "Healthy people don't need a doctor." Sick people do. Then he added, Now, go and learn the meaning of this scripture. 
I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus is not interested in our show of religiosity. He's interested in the demonstration of spiritual generosity. He's interested in us showing mercy that we have already found. You see, by virtue of the fact that I'm a disreputable sinner, I mean, I, I've received that amazing grace. I, I took it. I got it. Not because I'm special, but because Jesus is special. And because I've received that and I experience it and I live in it, I want as many people as possible to see it and live in it and experience it. And that's our job. That's our job. Whatever you do, wherever you go, that's your job. Well, Mac, I'm an attorney. That's cool. We need godly attorneys, somebody. I mean, Mac, I'm a lobbyist. Hey, great. We need godly lobbyists. (laughs) So I'm just... And listen, they're out there. They're absolutely out there. But we need more. Mac, I'm a a teacher. Thank God you do what you do. But remember, you teach to be salt and light. You teach because we are called to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is a non-negotiable. It's not reserved to the clergy, people who have been to seminary, people who have studied the Bible for 40 years. No. If you've received amazing grace, you get to give amazing grace. That's your job. That's my job. That's it. Because Jesus didn't come for people who think they're just fine. Jesus came for people who know they're sick. Jesus came for people who know that we need grace because we can't earn the favor of God. This is our job. This this is what we're called to do. See, Matthew just kind of incorporated Jesus into the relationships and the friendships that he already had. He was changed. He was different. He wasn't cheating people anymore. He didn't remain a tax collector and keep pocketing the difference. He was different. But he never forgot those who weren't yet different. He he never walked away from those who didn't yet know the amazing grace of Jesus. And as a matter of fact, he not only remembered them, he he invited them to come along for the ride and and to meet Jesus. He said, I want you to come to my house. We're going to have dinner. We're we're just going to have dinner. We may watch MMA. We may smoke a cigar. But we're we're just going to have dinner. Just as you are going. As you are going. Just as you're going. Just as you're going. Be the body of Christ. Because everything that matters in life hinges on the body of Christ. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. Because this morning we're going to end a little differently than we normally do. We're going to end with a time of Family prayer. 
If you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to pray. To pray a prayer of commitment to be a witness. To live in that interim between the resurrection and Jesus' return from heaven as the body of Christ, the living, breathing, walking and talking hands and feet of Jesus himself in a world, in a nation, in a city, in a neighborhood, in a home that needs the life of the party. In your own words, I want to invite you to pray with me silently where you're sitting. With the family of faith, a prayer of commitment. Let's pray together. Jesus, this morning we thank you for your amazing grace. The grace that heals us from the sickness of sin the brokenness of our own foolishness. And Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to join with you, to be your body in this world. Jesus, we pray for the grace we pray for wisdom. And we ask for the courage to carry your gospel, to be your hands and your feet, to be your voice in this world. Lord, we pray this prayer personally and individually. We pray this prayer as a church family. We ask God that you would make us a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We ask this prayer in the powerful, matchless name of our resurrected Lord this same Jesus. Amen.